So if you would kindly, brothers and sisters, have your Bibles open at the passage in John 3. As both of the passages that we're looking at are all part of the same discourse. And what I'd like to do this morning is have at the centre of our time together the verse that you will hear multi-times and have heard multi-times already this morning. This John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And spend the rest of our time together thinking about how the other verses lead into it and help us see the magnificence of it and the greatness, the beauty and the glory of the gospel. To help our thinking, I'd like to start with the words on a gravestone, a gravestone of a contemporary of both Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. And I know we're going to sing a Wesley hymn at the end. And if you just put that up for me, there it is. I'll read it for you. This is the gravestone of the Reverend John Berridge of Everton near Peterborough, just 50 miles down the road or so, which says this. Here lay the earthly remains of John Berridge, the late vicar of Everton, an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running errands for many years, was called to wait on him above. Now here we go. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without new birth. I was born in sin in February 1716. Remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. And this is a bit the wrong way around, but this is interesting. Admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1755. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Christ, January the 22nd, 1795. That fills my heart with joy. Does it yours? Does it yours? And in fact, you could almost say, there's the sermon, I'm off. But unfortunately for you, that's not the case. (laughs) But first of all, let us again come before our Lord and ask for his help as we come to his word. Father God, we so thank you for who you are and that you are a speaking God and you speak to us through your word. This morning, as your people gathered here, what we know not teach us, what we have not in Christ give us, and for your glory, what we are not make us. For we pray these things in and through that name above all names, that name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I listened to last week's sermon faithfully preached by my brother Owen here, and I give thanks for that. I was blessed by it, and I pray that you were blessed by it too. And Owen 
uh, faithfully taught us about the story of Nicodemus. This man, who was uh, one of the most unlikely converts. This man, who was high up there among the main party of those who wanted to <coughs> persecute and kill the Lord Jesus. And we clearly heard in the words of Jesus that not only can no one enter the kingdom of God, but importantly, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And apparently, both um, Wesley and his contemporary, um, George Whitfield, in their lifetimes, they preached between them some 70,000 sermons, 70,000 sermons, and about 10% of them, 7,000 sermons on this very subject. And Whitfield was once asked by a lady while he was on a preaching tour of the Eastern Seaboard of the USA, and she said to him, why, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep preaching on you must be born again? Why is that? And he said to her, because you must be born again. <laughs> but in this passage, through Nicodemus' questions and the answers of the Lord Jesus, we get to learn a little bit more what that means as we lead our way up to John 3.16. So what does being born again mean? Being born again is from above. It is from God, as it is referenced in the very first chapter in the 12th verse of this very gospel where it says he gave he gave the right to become children of God he gave it it is entirely of God and just like our own natural birth as illustrated in that passage we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth we are dead in our sins and trespasses as it tells us in Ephesians 2, not faintly wounded with our last gaps reaching out, but dead. But as we all know, a dead thing cannot do anything to help itself. And then in verse 5, Jesus goes on to explain it is of water and the spirit. Our new birth is a fulfilled promise of God through the prophet Ezekiel in the 25th and 26th verse of chapter 36 of that book, where God speaking says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Being born again means we have a regenerated new heart by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. To who or when that might happen, Jesus uses the analogy of the wind there, and we don't know when or where the Holy Spirit will come and be at work. We don't know when the Holy Spirit, directed by our Heavenly Father, will give souls to Jesus. As in chapter 6 and the 37th verse 
that all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There were, although we're told that Jesus, Nicodemus is marveling at Jesus' words, he's still struggling to believe it because he can't quite understand, despite the evidence standing in front of him. So the Lord Jesus, in his grace, takes him back to what we would know as the Old Testament, because Nicodemus would understand it being a teacher. He takes Nicodemus to what we know as the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, where the Lord Jesus, in his judgment, sends fatally poisonous snakes amongst the impatient, rebellious Israel, where they are bitten and so many died. Then in his grace, hearing the repentance of his people through the prayers of Moses, he made a way for the people of Israel to live. This is what it says from verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze servant serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it and the bronze, the bronze servant and live. Jesus is pointing out here that God is just unholy, and hold on to that, we'll come back to those things in a minute, and will judge sin by death. As Owen reminded us last week in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death but has also made a way by looking towards the bronze servant lifted up to live. A portent of the Lord Jesus lifted up on the cross. And as we know, and as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in verse 13, 14, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so as we finish the second part of that, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that kind of, in a way, brings us up to this high peak of verse 16. But now I'd like to come back from the other side of it, as it were. Because the peak of this passage is love, God so loved the world, which is the core character of God, who is perfectly loving. We mentioned just a moment ago another two of those equally important elements of his character, which are our God is perfectly holy and our God is perfectly just. And these are the main themes of verses 17 to 21, where it speaks of condemnation, judgment, and that great Old Testament theme, which John really loves, that of light, and of course, conversely, darkness. I'd like us to look at and think about and start with verse 18, <clears throat> where it states that whoever is, uh, who does not believe is already condemned. You see, that is the default starting position, if you like. The world is already in darkness on a path of evil and rebellion. The stain of sin leaves no part of creation untouched or darkened. There is nothing lovely in the world to commend it to anyone. It is a totally broken and frustrated creation because of sin. And all those who have not believed in the name are of the work and life and ministry, that's what the name means, of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, 
are already, already on a path of destruction, a path of perishing, a path of death. The ticket is pre-booked, as it were. For in verse 17, where it says, For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved to him, the world did not need to be condemned. It already was. What it needed was a saviour. And this is the judgment, it says in verse 19. The light has come into the world. These are echoes back again to the first chapter. In him was the life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And as we know in chapter 8, verse 12, one of those, again, high peak verses, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The symbol of light is not only the truth of God, but also the purity and holiness of God, as in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. I wonder, I wonder if there are any, uh, one or two of us here, a bit like me, that need to do some home decorating. You know, the room that you're all thinking of looks great in the dark, doesn't it? But when you put the light on, or when the sunshine comes in, you can see every fault there is. The cracks, the marks, the discoloration. As you can see, every blemish. And as an old motor trader, the old motor trade expression is never buy a car in the rain. Because it's dark. And because the drops of water hide a multitude of sins. But only in the sunshine, where every mark and scratch is exposed. The truth of the light of Jesus exposes our sin. We don't like it. It reflects back and we would rather be in the dark. It exposes that default position of our hearts. You see, there are two problems here. The first one is that what the gospel does to the world, it exposes those things that are pleasurable but against God. And that is why it's so offensive to the world. And those unregenerate hearts will only reject God and run away as fast as they can from God. They will run away and fight against it and be in conflict with the people of God because that's all an unregenerate heart can do. As the Apostle Paul writes in the 18th verse of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then secondly, in some ways, a greater problem is that the church of Christ in the West are not getting this. We do not fully understand the holiness of God. We cannot understand the great love of God until we understand the holiness of God and consequently, the seriousness of our sin. He cannot look upon sin, have anything to do with sin. He is utterly holy. However, in his grace and goodness, when man sins, he will turn that to his with pleasure and his 
good purposes. Think of Joseph, not that Joseph was referred to in the children's thought, but Joseph of the coat of many colours. Starting from Genesis 37. Was it evil that his brothers flung him into a pit and left him to die? And then telling his father Jacob that he'd been eaten by a fierce animal? Yes, of course it was. But God knowingly used that to ultimately save his starving people from Egypt. And of course, the conclusive demonstration of this is with the Lord Jesus himself. I find the easy way, easiest way of getting my head around this is from the two verses in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. And as I read these two verses out now, we have to believe that both these verses are equally true. They seem like a paradox, but both actually stand and work together. And this is where Peter and John are before the Jewish council in Jerusalem, where Peter is speaking. Verse 27. For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Peter is highlighting those who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. Was that an evil and sinful act of will and choice? Yes, it was. But, verse 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was God part of that evil act? Only in a sense that it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, showing that God had both foreknowledge and foreordained that Jesus would be crucified, but did not and does not absolve anyone of the responsibility of those who contributed to his death through the sinful, evil act. Sinful choices have eternal consequences. And this should highlight and help us not underestimate the seriousness of sin. It's a serious business. As the writer and, 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 and great commentator R.C. Sproul puts it in his book, The Holiness of God, Every sin is an act of cosmic treason. Every sin is an act of cosmic treason. treason, A futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. Back to the Acts 4.27. You murdered whom God had appointed. You murdered who God had appointed. Or even right back to Genesis 3. When the devil said, did God actually say that? Every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. Sin is so serious. That's why there are so many warnings against it, like from Jesus' brother James in the 15th verse of the first chapter of his book. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin is so serious. That's why dealing with it was so costly. You recall from the Old Testament days laid out in Leviticus, 
The great rituals in the tabernacle around the Day of Atonement were once a year the high priest, after atoning for his own sin with rich sacrificial rituals, would enter the Holy of Holies, would perform more sacrificial rituals to atone for the people, and then the laying of the sin of the people on the head of the scapegoat and sending it out into the wilderness to be seen no more. On all this, having to be done time and time and time again because of the sinful hearts of the people. And then the only way that this could be dealt with once, once and for all, was the perfect, unblemished, sinless sacrifice of the Word made flesh, God incarnate, Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself. Deny the seriousness of sin and we diminish the wonder of the cross. And then we go on. There is a prophetic warning in Isaiah chapter 5 which parallels these verses. These are our last verses in 20 and 21 where Isaiah writes in chapter 5 verse 20, Woe, woe to all those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness and light for light and darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So the light of Christ reveals sin, evil, rebellion. But it also tells us that those who walk in the light, the light will illuminate them. And all that is good and pure and holy and is a product of God's work. As the Gettys wrote in the hymn, Speak, O Lord, where they say, that the light of Christ may it see, be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. So as it were, we have been uh, up and down both sides of the mountain. So let us finish our time together on this peak. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God a holy just and loving sovereign God of three distinct co-equal persons Father, Son and Holy Spirit who have been in an, in an eternal loving relationship who before the foundation of the earth made a plan of salvation to redeem a, formal pe a fallen people back into relationship with God himself. So of the world, the world, yes, the whole world, despite its formalness, its cosmic rebellion, its filth and depravity, God so loved it. Not the filial, brotherly friendship love, not the eros, sexual love, but the agape, unreserved, unlimited, unrestricted, wholesale, wholehearted love that can only come from God. That he gave his one and only son. He gave him his one and only son, part of himself, over to become sin for us. He gave him. So when our Lord was on the cross and he took the sin of the world, he became sin for us. He became my sin 
your sin, the Father, because of his holiness, could not look upon him or be part of him. And in the breaking of that eternal relationship, and the pain was so great that the Lord Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbanthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a cost. What love. And that whoever believes in him. When this plan of salvation was made, and God the Father, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit knew the only perfect sacrifice would be the Lord Jesus on the cross. Was this done in the vain hope that some may respond? No. We worship an omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign, all-powerful God. But do we know who will be saved? No, we are not God. And as Nicodemus was told, the wind blows where it wishes. Should not perish, but have eternal life. Those who are saved and born again in a new relationship with God can claim victory over death that was given through Christ's resurrection and look forward to a sure and certain hope because God has no broken promises to a new heaven and a new earth and a new resurrection body greater than we can ever imagine to spend eternity with him. If you want proof of that, read Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Christian, we will be his people and he will be our God, living together in perfect union. What a promise, what a hope. As Rico Tai says, a joyful expectation of the future based on true events of the past that change everything about my today. My task is nearly complete this morning because my task here was not to come here and tell you how much Jesus loves you and plead with you to accept him in your heart. No, that would be unbiblical. My task here today is to preach Christ and him crucified. So like John writes in 2031, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's only promised King, the Messiah, the promised Saviour, and that this Jesus is real and what he says is true. So his light shines on you and you believe. Because when you do, the Holy Spirit will give you a new, regenerate heart. One of flesh, not of stone. And he will come to live inside you. So then you will realise, because of your sin before you, the helpless, perilous state you are in before a holy God. And like the Reverend John Berridge in 1756, in repentance, you will flee to Jesus alone for refuge. Reader, or this moment listener, art thou born again? Know salvation 
without new birth. Let's pray. Father God, we would pray that you will affect our hearts this morning by the renewing of our minds. That if we're here this morning and yet we don't know you, we pray for hearts of flesh and not of stone. For those that do know you this morning, please equip your saints for the work of ministry through the power of your word. Glorify yourself and all that has gone on in this place this morning. Advance your kingdom. May your name of Jesus be lifted up high because that's the name in which we pray, Lord. Amen.